Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikbat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, across from the Art Museum. For more information, you can visit our website at tikvatisrael.com. There, you can support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and contact us with any questions or comments. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Here at Tikvat have been so blessed to go through the entire book of Yohanan and observe the life of Messiah Yeshua. Yohanan, John is so unique when compared to the other Gospels. And in John, we have seen that Yeshua really gives no parables per se. Instead, Messiah gives very long and very beautiful speeches, mostly in the form of prayers, emphasizing his oneness with the Father, Hashem. By comparison, in the other three Gospels, Yeshua does tell parables, and he answers his detractors with these kind of quippy, you know, one-liners, if you will, these zingers, if you will. And in these zingers... He cleverly reveals the nature of the kingdom of God. In Yohanan, Yeshua really only gives one zinger, and I'll admit, I had always taken it for granted. I always got kind of a chuckle out of it, but then the older that I got, I learned very quickly and very harshly, might I add, that most people don't see any humor in it at all and in fact get quite offended. And what I'm referring to specifically is the dialogue between Yeshua and his mother at the wedding of Cana. Yeshua's mother Mary discovers that the host has run out of wine and not wanting him to be humiliated in front of his guests, she asks her son for his intervention. Yeshua answers her, And what is that to do with me, woman? Now, as I said, I admittedly always got a kick out of that line because anyone that grew up with any smatterings of Yiddish in their lives, even if that only occurred once a year, you know that this was just kind of rhetorical, affectionate banter. It's as if Yeshua had looked at his mom and said, you know, ah, come on, ma. I already mowed the grass before we left. I'm at a wedding. I want to enjoy myself. Was wollen Sie mir von mein Welt? What more do you want from me? And I mean, it's so benign. But the older that I got, the more I found out that people just lose their minds over this one line, accusing Yeshua of being chauvinistic, degrading, and condescending to his poor mother in public. Now, here's the thing. If we zoom out from that dialogue, we very quickly see that Mary does not even seem a little bit offended and in fact turns to the servants and tell them, do whatever he says, as if to playfully see, you see what I got to put up with at home, just just do whatever he says. And then Yeshua uses this situation to show the first of his seven signs, they're called in John, of revealing his divinity. And yes, brothers and sisters, of course, I know I'm fully aware they did not speak Yiddish 2,000 years ago in the Galilee.
but it's this style of Jewish speech that's everywhere in the Bible. This kind of rhetorical asking of questions that everybody already knows the answer to. Psalm 78 is interesting, and it's an example of what I'm saying. It's quite long. It recounts the history of the Jewish people wandering and complaining in the desert during the Exodus, and how Hashem was always faithful to them. It almost reads like it could have even been the, the first Passover Haggadah ever written. And there's a part of it that states, and I'm paraphrasing from Psalm 78, pardon me, in front of their ancestors, he performed miracles in the land of Egypt. He divided the sea and led them through it. He guided them by a cloud during the day and by a fiery light throughout the night. He split rocks in the desert and gave them plenty to drink, an ocean of water. They continued to sin against him, to rebel in the desert against the Most High. They deliberately tested God by demanding the food they craved. Can God prepare a banquet in the desert? True, he did strike a rock and water gushed out and the streams did overflow. But can he also give us bread? These questions right here, go ahead and turn back. Uh, these questions right here, I wanna read those together. Can God prepare a banquet in the desert? but can he also give us bread? And of course, the psalmist and the readers all together know that these answers are rhetorical, but you can see, hear that kind, of, that kind of bantering style. Now today, we're going to go a step further, and we are going to examine probably one of the most off-putting remarks ever to come out of Yeshua's mouth on the surface. A remark that could be judged as downright appalling on the surface. I'm paraphrasing from Mark 7. From that place he went off to the district of Tyre. Soon a woman whose daughter, who had an unclean spirit, heard about him. She came and fell at his feet. The woman was Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to drive a demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the bread of the children and throw it to the dogs. Ouch. Little low blood sugar there, Yeshua. You need a Snickers? To be called a dog was a very well-known Jewish insult to a Gentile. I mean, after all, if the ideal kosher animal is a sheep, which is a mammal, it has cloven hooves, it's a vegetarian, it only eats grass and leaves, and it chews its cud. Now contrast that with a dog, who one could say is the polar opposite of a kosher sheep. Yes, it is a mammal, but it also is a carnivore, and worse than that, it's a scavenger. It'll eat whatever it can find that is remotely edible. It does not chew its cud. It has no hooves, but instead pads which directly touch the filth of the ground. And if that is not bad enough, it has claws. Now this is the polar opposite of the Torah's description of a kosher animal. You cannot sugarcoat being called a dog. But what I am gonna do this morning, I am going to ask you to all stay with me. 
You all going to do that? Just stay with me. Just like we did at the wedding of Cana a few minutes ago, we're going to zoom out from this dialogue and we're going to see exactly where Yeshua's heart really was. And, and I can look at you and I can look and, and tell what all of you are thinking. Great, it's that loudmouth Wayne again out there. He's going to drag us all through a 20-minute history lesson. Lord, just help me stay awake until Oneg. Help me stay awake until Oneg. Best Oneg in town. Best Oneg in town. To those of you that are thinking that, please let me, let me relax you. I'm not, I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to give you a big, long history lesson. I am, however, going to give you a very enlightening geography lesson. Now, we all know how absolutely nutty King Herod was. This is kind of a very generic map of the Galilee at the time of Yeshua. If it was more filled in, we'd be able to see really how neurotic this guy ruled his land. Israel and Judah were, of course, at this time occupied by the Romans, but Herod knew exactly which side his bread was buttered. He knew that he was only in power because the Romans needed a puppet to rule this land and quash any uprisings before they occurred. So Herod knew that he had to endear himself to, himself to the Romans. At the same time, he knew that he'd better mind his P's and Q's with the Jewish people or they would certainly rebel and the Romans would replace him quicker than he could blink. So he built up Solomon's temple in Jerusalem here to show his people how Jewish he was, even though the Jewish people knew that he was anything but. And at the exact same time, he built up Roman cities to show his Roman overlords exactly how Roman he was. He built a Roman trading port slash resort city called Caesarea Maritima uh, right here. And what that literally means in English, by the way, is Caesar by the sea. Even 2,000 years through history, it still sounds like a resort. And the Romans loved him for this because the Romans got a tariff-free trading port that they didn't have to pay for because it was built on the backs of poor Jews. Then we have this area right here. And this area was called the Decapolis. It was a series of ten Greek cities that were left over from the Greek Seleucid Empire. Remember them, Antiochus IV and all that? So, to sum up, we have, we have Jewish territory here in the Galilee. We have Jewish territory here in Judah. Nazareth is here. Now, to continue, we have pagan, polytheistic culture here in Tyre, okay? This is modern-day Phoenicia, modern-day, excuse me, Lebanon going into Syria. And we have Gentile territory here. So it kind of forms kind of a boomerang shape over the Sea of Galilee. Down here, Jewish territory. The exchange between Yeshua and the Phoenician Gentile woman occurred here in Gentile territory. 
and that's going to be very significant. Let's read it again. From that place, he went off to the district of Tyre. Soon a woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him. She came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to drive a demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the bread of the children and throw it to the dogs. And here, the Syrophoenician woman gives Yeshua a zinger right back. She says, Lord, even the dogs eat the children's scraps from the master's table. Now, I don't at all think that it was the fact that she could banter back that moved Yeshua into action. There are clues in the original Greek. Now, in fairness, my Greek has much to be desired, but I can muddle through. And I must say, I must say I don't like this word soon. Uh, in the Greek, the word is actually, it's very deliberate. Um, it has a connotation of urgency to it, of, of desperation almost. This is my own translation, and perhaps it, it'll illuminate what I'm saying. Perhaps a better translation could be, a woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and urgently went to him and straight away fell at his feet and begged him. Something like that. And I think that this is what moved Yeshua. I think he was moved by her desperate, unconditional love for her demon-possessed daughter. A love that says, I will do whatever it takes to help my beloved. Even if that means enduring whatever insult anyone has to throw at me for the rest of my life. I'll do whatever it takes just to help this person I love. And I think that all of us here in this synagogue, or even listening by podcast, can relate to that sometime or another in our lives. We all have someone in our lives that we just adore. And we feel the exact same way about, don't we? Continuing. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the bread of the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied to him, Lord, even the dogs eat the children's scraps from the master's table. He then said to her, for saying this, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And when the woman went home, she found her child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now this is where it's going to get fun. Let's zoom out even further. This dialogue here with the Gentile woman occurs sandwiched between two very significant events. It's noteworthy that this passage starts with the word from that place he went off to the district of Tyre. I'm backing up now and I'm, I'm paraphrasing from Mark 6. Yeshua and his disciples went off in a boat by themselves to a deserted place. People saw them leaving and many came. They're on foot from all the towns. His heart was moved for pity, with pity for them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them. 
By then it was already late and the disciples approached him and said, it's already very late and in this deserted place. Dismiss them so they can go to the surrounding farms and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Yeshua said, give them some food yourselves. But they said to him, are we to buy 200 days wages worth of food for them? Yeshua asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five loaves and two fish. So he gave orders to have them sit down in groups on the green grass. Then taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he said a blessing, broke the loaves and gave it to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them. They ate and were satisfied, and they picked up 12 baskets full of fragments and what was left of the fish. Those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. I want to call your attention to some very noteworthy details. This feeding took place in the Galilee, Jewish territory, right here. Second of all, it states that this particular place was deserted, a wilderness. Now, what in Torah does that recall? Also, they were like sheep without a shepherd, and Yeshua had them sit down in groups among the green grass. Psalm 23rd come into anyone's mind. The Lord is my shepherd. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. The story states two very specific numbers. Two fish and five loaves. We have all heard of the main Jewish sects. At this time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they almost agreed on absolutely nothing, brothers and sisters. But the one thing they did agree on is that the Torah of Moses was absolutely, positively authoritative. And how many scrolls are in the Torah of Moses? Congregation? How many scrolls? Five. Where else did these 5,000 Jews hear of a Jewish people receiving miraculous bread from heaven in a desert? Hmm? During the Exodus. And moreover, what would this Jewish crowd immediately be reminded of with 12 baskets full left over? Exactly right, the 12 tribes. It was from this point that they went into the district of Tyre. And Yeshua had the interaction with the Syrophoenician woman, Gentile territory, and healed her daughter. Let's zoom out a bit more and see what happens next. And I'm paraphrasing from Mark 7 to Mark 8 after after the interaction 
with the Gentile woman. Again, Yeshua left the district of Tyre and went by the Sea of Galilee into the, the, the Decapolis. There was again a great crowd. The Decapolis, remember, Gentile territory. So Yeshua is in Gentile territory still. There was again a great crowd without anything to eat. Yeshua summoned his disciples and said, My heart is moved with pity for the crowd because they have been with me now for days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will collapse on the way, as some of them have come a great distance. His disciples answered him, Where can anyone get enough bread to satisfy them in this deserted place? <laughs> really, disciples? You kidding me, guys? Weren't they just with Yeshua in the Galilee? This is, this is the funny thing about Mark. It really portrays the disciples as being absolutely dim-witted. And you really see why Yeshua is exasperated with them. It's like they've all had root canals and they're coming out of dental anesthesia. Still, Yeshua asked them, How many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied. He ordered the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the crowd. They also had a few fish. Unnumbered. A few fish. He said a blessing over them and ordered them distributed as well. They ate and were satisfied. My cup runneth over. I shall not want. They picked seven baskets full of fragments left over. There were 4,000 people. Let's take a closer look. This is a Gentile crowd in the Decapolis. 4,000 people. And just as previously stated in the Galilee, his heart was moved with pity for them. Just like the Jewish crowd of the 5,000. Here again, Yeshua satisfies the Gentile multitude of 4,000 with a few fish and seven loaves. And there were seven baskets full left over. Now, to those of you either here or by podcast, or listening to me, and you're a, you're a little bit more skeptical and maybe thinking, okay, okay Wayne, this, this number game you're playing here is cute, but trivial. You're, you're seeing what you want to see, Wayne. To those of you who may be thinking that, let's see what Yeshua himself had to say about it. And I'm paraphrasing from Mark 8. Remember, at this point of the story, as I said a minute ago, Yeshua is just so absolutely exasperated with the disciples about their continued just dim-wittedness. And out of sheer frustration, he asks them, do you not yet understand or comprehend? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 people and how many baskets full of fragments you picked up? They answered him, 12. 
when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000 Gentiles. How many baskets of fragments did you pick up? Seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? So obviously, I would introduce to you that Yeshua himself did not feel that he was being trivial. He was being deliberate and purposeful with these numbers. And so are we going to be the same here this morning? Pardon me. Who's heard of the four corners of the earth in ancient writings? Who's heard of the four winds in ancient writings? Who's heard of the four pillars which hold up the four corners of the earth in ancient writings? These were written by Gentile, seafaring people. The Hebrews were never a seafaring people. Four, brothers and sisters, at least in this case, is a representation of the Gentile world. And how many were in the Gentile crowd in the Gentile Decapolis? How many? 4,000. Do you notice something else? Something so completely subtle? Hang with me. Hang with me. The emphasis on the feeding of the Jewish 5,000 is the number 5, most likely representing the five scrolls of the Torah. But this feeding... The Bible is also very, very careful and very, very deliberate in, in, in saying specifically that there are two fishes. What's five plus two? What's five plus two? Seven. Seven days of creation. Shabbat is the seventh day. I need not remind you in a Jewish synagogue that in Jewish scriptures how many, many, many Many times, things, things purporting to the Almighty Eternal One occur in sevens. He's represented by the number seven. And in the feeding of the Gentile 4,000, it just says a few fish. Whereas in the feeding of the Jewish 5,000, it's specific. Two fish and five loaves. But how many loaves were used to feed the Gentile 4,000 until they were satisfied? How many? Seven. How many baskets full are left over? Seven. Brothers and sisters, Yeshua is making a deliberate theological statement in his actions that the true God of the Gentiles are not your pagan idols, are not your Greco-Roman pantheon. It's Hashem. It's the Almighty and Eternal One who is the one true God of Israel and the Gentiles. And only by Hashem will Israel and the Gentiles receive the true bread from heaven, which is the only meal that satisfies the soul. I'm going to leave you all today with a thought for the rest of your Shabbat. And now, now me personally, this absolutely just gives me chills. Aside from the stories of the last seven days of Yeshua's life, the, the Passion Week, there is only one, and I mean one, one other event that's reported in all four Gospels. Do y'all know what that is? Hmm? Every Gospel records a story of Yeshua feeding the multitudes with only a few loaves of 
bread and a few fishes. All four. I open the sermon with an excerpt from Psalm 78. Can God prepare a banquet in the desert? Can he provide his people with bread? And brothers and sisters, the voice of the Syrophoenician woman echoes 2,000 years through time with the answer, us, here, today, and forever, that yes, he can and did provide his people with bread. And yes, Yeshua can and did prepare a banquet in the desert, and everyone, Jew and Gentile, side by side, we all sit together at the Master's table. Shabbat Shalom.